Ahoy, Mets fans. Welcome back to Today Your Love, Tomorrow the World Series. My name is Brian. With me, as always, is Chris. And Chris, we last recorded the Mets had just gotten swept by the Milwaukee Brewers in pretty uh, embarrassing fashion, giving up uh, 10 runs in one game, nine in another, I believe eight in the third series, third game of the series. And uh, But since then, the things have been better for the Mets. They came back to New York. They took two of three from the Marlins. They took two of three from the Padres. So it's our da- it's our weekly vibe check. How are you feeling about the Mets today? Overall, pretty good. Certainly better than the uh, average Mets fan that, that I've seen over the last couple of weeks. I know uh, I didn't go to the home opener myself, but I uh, always have, uh, whether it's our uh, Amazing Avenue pals or people from outside the site or whomever there's always plenty of people at the home opener who who i know even though that has not always been uh a a must-see game for me personally Mm -hmm. so i know the friends who were posting from there were you know they were coming off that awful brewer series and uh just kind of the combination of things that they they sprung the uniform patch on everybody what the you know, the morning before the home opener. Um, so they'd gotten swept. They had that. And obviously the team has had, you know, it's fair share of injuries for the first few weeks of the season and the, and the, um, the weeks that preceded it. But mm-hmm. yeah, I don't know. Seven and six is not amazing. It's an 87 win pace. Obviously we expect a little bit better out of the Mets than that. But it's also not awful. Like, nobody wants the Mets to only be as good as they've been so far this year. But if they were, they might make the playoffs anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. 87 wins is not the bar that I want to set as as acceptable for this team. But it's just... They have not fully clicked, uh, especially between some inconsistency in terms of their run scoring uh, so far. And and obviously the starting rotation, uh, missing Verlander, missing Quintana, uh, Max Scherzer having been, you know, a little bit rocky, Carlos Carrasco, the same. There's a lot that hasn't gone super well. And yet here they are having won three of their first four series, one of which was a four game series, uh, and I don't know. I think there's plenty of reason to still be optimistic about what this team will do over the course of uh, the next few months. Yeah, I, I think that's a that's a fair and reason to take. Um, you know, it, it's especially hard to get excited, to be optimistic, et cetera, et cetera, when there's a rash of injuries happening. And it seemed like the Mets were just running into bad injury luck at the end of spring training or during spring training in general with the Edwin Diaz injury, the Jose Quintana injury, the Verlander injury. You know, all of it just seemed to hit at once. And that certainly is going to take your toll, take its toll on the fan base's excitement for the season and their optimism going into things. Um, that Brewers series was really ugly as well. Like that's that's about as bad as a as a regular season series can go in terms of performance, not, not even just injury, but in terms of performance. And uh, like you said, there, there have been some things that have, that have been a little bit disconcerting. And I think that people are 
maybe, you know, I know this is going to be hard to believe in Panic City, but people may be taking things a little bit more seriously than they should have. But I think that there is some of the things that have happened that are, you know, at, at least worth discussion, if not necessarily worry. Like, for instance, um, you know, Max Scherzer has looked very human this season. He had a good first start. He had a terrible second start and had a pretty good third start. Um, but, you know, people were expecting, I think, Scherzer to be more dominant early this season than he's been. Similarly, Carlos Carrasco has looked terrible so far this season. Really, really bad across all of his starts. His ERA, I believe, is north of 11 right now. I was writing up a, the series preview against the uh, A's, and I wrote that before. Yeah, um, yeah we have an 11.42 ERA right now for Carrasco. So, you know, th there are things that the Mets are not excelling at right now. Uh, we're going to talk about the bottom of the lineup in a little while, but I don't think it's, I don't think it's necessarily time to panic yet. Obviously I, I think you and I tend to be, and, and you more than me tend to be the, the last people on the block to panic about the Mets, um, which is both a good thing. And probably uh, if you're a panicky sort, maybe a frustrating part of our fandom, um, <laughs> you know, but uh, I do think that there, there's some cause for concern there. Do any of those sort of uh, pitching mishaps early this season, do any of those concern you? Not, um, not Scherzer. I think he'll be fine. <clears throat> I know last season his final start was not a good one. Uh, and I know that his second start in particular this year uh, was, was pretty bad, but he doesn't he doesn't look like the dominant guy that um we expect him to be but with him it's like all right it's just three starts everything's a little bit inflated on on the ERA fit uh side of things and the strikeouts aren't there the way they normally would be and um i don't know it, it, for somebody who always wants to discount spring training, I really don't want to read too much into his flat out dominance against the Rays in that spring training game that was in the actual, uh, you know, Tropicana Fields mm -hmm. setting. But that guy looked in that outing, he looked like the pitcher that we know he is fully capable of being. Uh, so with someone who is clearly headed to the Hall of Fame, a perennial Cy Young contender, uh, all of those things. I am willing to give him the benefit of the doubt that he will turn it around and, and he'll be all right. Um, with Carrasco, I I will defend him until the bitter end. Perhaps uh, foolishly, we're looking at you know more strikeouts. Sorry, more walks than strikeouts. Uh, over three home runs per nine innings. Um, it it's it's been as you said, it's been pretty bad in those two starts, and I, maybe it's a combination of uh, various things, but it it still stands out to me that he had a scheduled minor league start late in spring training that they skipped, uh, and then they had him throw one that was on schedule, I think two days before the season started to line him up for his first start of the season. Um, but it just makes me wonder if there's something there. And if, 
if Verlander were healthy and Quintana were healthy, would they maybe have him on the IL right now, sort of nursing whatever he has going on? Buckshaw Walter had described it at the time as uh, routine elbow maintenance, which I don't know, sounded a little bit like bullshit. And also elbow isn't the word that you want to hear. In, no, in, no, not at all. In that circumstance. So, yeah, I I don't want to jump to conclusions and say that he's not a major league pitcher anymore, but I think it's, it's fair to be a little bit concerned uh, based on just how bad things have been, you know, with Scherzer, it's a, he's got a 4.41 ERA. Uh, all right. It's April. We know two gems and all of a sudden that's, that's going to be sitting around three, right. you know, uh, yeah, my, my only real Scherzer concern is that he's given up four home runs already. Right. You know, then that's just that's although three of them were in like very quick uh, succession. That is true. <laughs> that, that is that is true also. Um, but yeah, no, they still I, count. I, yeah, they they definitely still count. Uh, yeah, Carrasco is the one that worries me the most because I mean, look, Carrasco had a a pretty good year last year. I heard Keith Hernandez say something. I don't know if it was exactly this quote. He said so. He either said he was their best pitcher last year, or he had the best season last year. And what he meant by that was that he got 15 wins, which, as we all know, pitcher wins are a terrible metric to judge a starting pitcher's success on. But Keith Hernandez is old school, and that's just how he is. But when you hear, when you just think about that for a second, he was good enough to win 15 games last year. And whether you believe in that as a metric for, um, you know, uh, for predicting success or not, most people can't win 15 games while being a bad pitcher. You can win 15 games without being a great pitcher, but you can't really do that as a bad pitcher. And so just a year ago, he was good enough to at least keep his team in the game for 15 of those starts. And I'm sure he had more quality starts than that as well. I just don't have the numbers up in front of me. But between the spring training maintenance, between just how over the course of his relatively limited Mets tenure. There have been a number of starts where he just hasn't looked comfortable and just looked like he was just laboring. And now with this, you know, the these last couple of appearances being really rough, it, it's it's just tough to not get a little bit worried about him. Um, I'm not ready to cut him yet or anything along those lines, especially because the Mets have nobody behind him right now. You know, when Verlander comes back, and you can maybe phantom IL him for a little bit, let McGill or Robertson or both of them, not Robertson, Peterson, it, you know, in some combination take those starts. I think that that's a very reasonable plan going forward. But um, I, I am worried about Carrasco. And I think that the next few weeks are going to be very telling as to sort of what the rest of his season is going to look like, whether he's even going to have the opportunity to be a regular part of the rotation will be determined in the next few weeks. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's worth pointing out with him too. <clears throat> he threw 152 innings last year and from 2019 through 21 combined, uh, there were really significant reasons why he, he battled cancer and thankfully uh, came through it. Okay. Yep. Uh, the pandemic happened at, uh, and and he had some injuries in his first year with the Mets after the trade where he came over with Lindor. But over the course of those three seasons, he threw 201 and two-thirds innings combined. 
so his highest total was back in 2019 when he threw 80. So 152 innings in one season after three years of getting nowhere near there. It's just a lot of work. Yeah. Uh, so maybe there's some sort of like pitching hangover effect. Um, maybe the pitch clock has messed him up more than the average veteran pitcher. Uh, and I hope he turns it around. It, you know, you look, you say he's given up more than three home runs per nine innings, and that's totally out of character, both with what he did last year and over the course of his career. So uh, I hope this is not his version of like Edwin Diaz's first season with the Mets, mm-hmm. where it's just, we know this guy's got a great track record and this season is just not good. Um so yeah, we'll we'll see. But uh yeah, fair to be concerned. And I, yeah. I hope it's something that we're not talking about three or four starts from now. Agreed. But if it stays this bad, you you have to at least consider the Phantom IL, whether Vorlander is back or not. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um so similarly, there there are some concerns towards the bottom of the Mets lineup with the way that that piece is producing. Um, we're going to talk about Eduardo Escobar in a minute, but you know, since Narvaez went on the IL, we have uh, we've seen Francisco Alvarez in the majors, and he has looked jumpy and overmatched thus far. He is very young. This is no knock on his future performance, but right now he does look overmatched, or at least overmatched might be the wrong word. He looks ill-equipped for these at-bats right now. He just seems over-anxious and not really focused. Uh, would you characterize it as that, or would you put it differently? I think so, I mean, especially that at-bat late in the game that they uh, that they lost to the Padres. And that, that was a spot where Hayter was pretty much melting down, and it's so frustrating as a fan. When you see a reliever who's just on the ropes like that, nobody's warming up, and they are just not throwing strikes. And yet, guys on the team that you're rooting for swing. <laughs> yep. And he it wasn't just Alvarez in that inning. It just happened to be that he was the the, the final one uh, yeah. to do it. But it was one of those innings where uh, Hayter didn't have the zone. I think I – I didn't really follow up. Uh, enough to read after the game whether or not Buckshaw Walter was initiating uh, umpire discussion and, and replay review just to mess with him, but it seemed that way. Uh, and if that was the reason that he did that, it, it, it seemed to work. Hater could not throw strikes and he kept missing high. And it's just one of those where, you know, it's one of those situations where veteran hitters sometimes get fooled into uh, I, hey i got to i got to be the hero here right you know the 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 <clears throat> time runs on base uh i i present the winning run i think that was the case with alvarez mm-hmm. right or maybe he was I believe the time so. run. Yeah. yeah um so you see that from hitters who have plenty of experience so it's totally understandable for somebody that young to get up there and really be looking to sort of have a defining moment early in their uh, major league season. But I think with time, it'll, it'll be okay in that regard. And some hitters will always uh, swing outside the zone 
more than average and, and some won't. I actually thought in that inning what bugged me more was that Showalter sent Nito up to hit for Guillaume. Yes. And I think Guillaume would have been fully capable of drawing a walk against yes. Hater in that in that spot. Um and I'm not saying I would have hit Nito for Alvarez either, but <laughs> No, but why are you pitching any Nito at all? Nito's a not a very good hitter. <laughs> Right, and and for any concerns that you have about a like a catcher injury or, or whatever that they're trying to use to justify how little they've played Alvarez since they brought him up, uh, you know, I don't know, maybe maybe deploy those players a little bit differently, but yeah, yeah, it's it's super early, and I think Alvarez is gonna be fine, but it sucked. Like I, I as soon as it happened, it was. Oh man, like he had to be the last out. This is yep. something that people will talk about and judge him for. And I don't know that that just kind of sucks. It does. It does. And that is one small piece of the Mets sort of bottom of the lineup problem right now. You know, we've seen Mark Canna have, I think, a very Mark Canna first, you know, uh, 13 games where there are some days that Canna looks real sharp and some days where he looks a little bit overmatched. But, you know, it's early in the season and that's that's not too alarming. Um we have the, the thing that's been maybe the most alarming thus far has been the lack of performance from Eduardo Escobar, especially because it is at this point in his Mets career impossible to judge him on his performance because we're really judging him on the fact that he is not Brett Beatty. And while I think it is very justified to want Beatty up, and I, I am in that camp, I think Beatty who is just raking at Syracuse right now should be the starting third baseman right now. I think even if you believe that it is possible to also recognize that everyone is putting Escobar on the world's shortest, shortest leash because of Beatty, right? It, it is, it is possible that Beatty should be playing and also that Alvarez, maybe not Alvarez, sorry, Escobar maybe shouldn't be judged like he is like his baseball career is over right now um, because of the first, you know, two and a half weeks of, of a season. Um, however, I, I will say that there is um, there should in my eyes, there should be some concern about Alvarez's performance thus far this year. Going back to last season, you know, if, if you remember the the conversation in September of last year was it was the month of Alvarez. Part of that was because he had been so, I don't want to say ineffective. Ineffective is probably, uh, you know, uh, a bit harsh. But he was certainly not living up to expectations for most of the season last year and then had that absolutely incredible September run that put him, you know, into a better conversation um, for the end of the season. And so between a rough 2022 a very poor World Baseball Classic, a surging Brett Beatty, and now a very slow first few weeks of the season. Escobar is looking like somebody who maybe shouldn't be playing every day at third base. Maybe he makes sense to be the right-handed DH complement, although Tommy Pham was making that conversation more difficult because Tommy Pham is having a very interesting, uh, uh, you know, a very interesting uh patch so far i i did say month of alvarez meant month of escobar 
I have I have this thing where I vowels at the end of the beginning of names always mess me up. I have very good friends. Uh, my wife's name is Erin, and my friend's name is Eileen. And when they're together, I will call them the opposite name constantly. <laughs> I am very bad with voweled first names or voweled names in general. So month of Escobar, not month of Alvarez. Um, but yeah, I, so my my thing is this: I, I do think that the bottom of the Mets lineup is a bit of a problem right now. I don't think it's a f- catastrophe. I just think that it's what's frustrating is that a lot of times there are issues with the baseball team that you don't have a clear cut solution. Right now, the Mets starting pitching, there is not a clear cut solution. You know, uh, maybe you believe in Joey Lucchese's recent uh, emergence in the minors. That's great, but that's not that. That's you know, we need more data there. Um, there is an absolute solution to the bottom of the lineup here if you sub in Beatty for Escobar, and if you let Alvarez start the majority of the games and get in the routine of Major League hitting, that completely changes the bottom of that lineup. And I think that's where my frustration comes from. Not so much that these players are gone, you need to get rid of them, but just there's a solution that's right there for you. And they're not doing it. Right, right. And I I don't think Tim LaCastro is the guy who needs to block all that from happening. No. By any means, it was an odd choice. I, I guess we never really knew if Le Castro had any kind of opt out or anything um, that caused the Mets to carry him on the opening day roster. But that pinch runner only type of thing, if they had the flexibility, uh, you know, he'd only signed a minor league deal. He wasn't on the 40 man roster. If he was in a spot that he would have been stuck in AAA until they wanted to go into that. Uh, phase of the season where they had a running only guy, then I, I just don't understand why they didn't play it that way. Uh, even if it was just straight up service time manipulation, I know Beatty got some time last year, but I think they would be close to the point that they'd be on, be beyond that uh, threshold. Uh, I'd have to double check how many days of service he has and, and all that. Um, but yeah, I, I I just don't quite get it, and I I will uh, very much on brand. I will defend Escobar until I don't know until he's got two hundred plate appearances with a WRC plus below zero. Uh, <laughs> it, it, it's he's a player who was not as good, and I and I know I'll admit last. April, I was like, Robinson Cano is going to be the next Granderson. Everybody hates him. He's going to get out of it and <laughs> and figure it out. That did not happen. That very much did not happen. He was on, what, the Padres and Braves, both within a month of the Mets uh, designating him for assignment and releasing him. It, it, he never caught back on uh, in any significant way at the major league level. Um uh, but but Granderson being my better example of defending this guy who's you know well into his thirties and has a a very good track record and had a tough go of it in April and then turned it around. So um, you know I know we've literally seen that with Escobar just last year um, where, where that really strong finish helped bring his overall line up, but. Um, I think he is still a valuable piece to have on the team. And I do think that uh, he he talked about it a bit 
in spring training too, but to to still be talking about uh, Beatty in a positive light, like of course that's what you're supposed to do, but we've seen some players who maybe wouldn't handle that very gracefully. And so for Escobar Fair. to be struggling himself and being pro Beatty uh, and, and and a supportive teammate and you know understanding the context of it all. Uh, I think there's a reason why he was raved about as a teammate in his time with the twins and the diamondbacks. Uh, and obviously just being a good teammate isn't enough on a team that is expected to contend for the division and the world series. But um, I, it's a long season and he's, he's only been in 12 games. So I will, I will hold out hope that he ends up racking up like, I don't know, three to 400 plate appearances in total over the course of the season. And and I, I would support Beatty coming up and starting over him. Uh, but you can still find at bats and you can still give Beatty rest during busy stretches. And as much as we don't want to hear it, some infielder is going to get hurt this year, even if it's only a minor injury. So there, there will be opportunities there. Uh, it, to get playing time. And I, and I think the the roster is more complete with Beatty, Escobar, and Guillaume on it than it is with Escobar, Guillaume, and LeCastro. Yeah, I, I I definitely agree with that. I I, I actually like LeCastro as a player, I think, more than almost anyone <laughs> on our site does. Uh, but, I, I mean, I agree with you. I, if, if someone has to go, it's obviously LeCastro. Um, I guess for me the bigger issue here is – is not so much what's happening right now. Because look, I mean, the Mets are seven and six. Would I love them to be the Rays and be thirteen and zero? Of course I would, right? <laughs> but but that's that's not super realistic. But let let's just say that the Mets, with an optimized roster, would have won one additional game of the first thirteen. That sounds like a fair, um, a fair thing to maybe put out there. That with Beatty and Alvarez, and you know, maybe so far. They'd have pushed one game, and that probably is even overstating the import of one player on a game. But let's just say that. What I don't like is the way the Mets are defending these decisions. To me, that is the bigger issue here. You know, saying that Beatty has to be sent down because of developmental goals and then not stating what those developmental goals are looks like you're just holding them down for no real reason. Um, you know, saying that. Alvarez, I said the right name that time, saying that Alvarez has to play every day, and that's why he's going to be in AAA, but then you call him up and you don't play him every day. These are hard things to argue when there's such clear evidence of you stating the opposite per, the opposite goal not that long ago, right? right. Um, and so that's more what bothers me, is just the way this is all shaking out. Not necessarily what's happening, but why it's happening, and how it's being defended. Um, I do think you're going to see Beatty sooner than later. I mean, he had another home run tonight for Syracuse. I, I, I think that they're not going to be able to ignore this much longer. I think midway through the, the road trip or when they get back home, you'll see Beatty join the team, and that's fine. I am more worried about them just misusing Alvarez in his time when he's up. And Narvaez is out like nine weeks, they said, right? Presumably? Yeah. Yeah. 
that's a long time for Alvarez to play twice a week. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, I, he has to play more than that. <laughs> it's just uh, to borrow a line from a, a relatively obscure Wilco song. It's just that simple. Yeah. <laughs> I love that song. It's a good one. Yeah. Um. Anyway, yeah. That's that. That's the bottom of the rotation. Or the bottom of the of the lineup situation right now. Uh, we should say the Mets claimed a couple of players on waivers uh, recently. Seth Elledge they claimed from the Braves, and Edwin Useta they claimed from. Was it was he with the Tigers this spring? I forget where he where he wound up this spring. Um, I think he, that was it. Uh, yeah, I don't think was he... the Diamondbacks last year. I know during the season. Yeah. Um, do you have any strong feelings on these two waiver claims? Not super strong. I will say I have well. Uh, I have more optimism with Elledge just because he had spent time in the Cardinals organization, time in the Braves organization. Um, with the Braves AAA affiliate last year, he had over 12 strikeouts per nine. His ERA was a little high, but I don't know. I don't want to read too much into AAA fit for a 26-year-old, but <laughs> it, I, I don't know. There's something there. And with, with Useta, um it's a little harder to see it. Uh, you know, with Elledge, he's only had limited major league exposure and it, it hasn't gone super well. Um, but with Useta, it's, uh, I don't know, it, it's hard to overlook a, a six plus ERA, even if it is in fewer than 50 innings of work. Uh, I don't know if either of these guys will help this year, but for now, they're easy guys to claim. Um, the fact that they could both be claimed and just sent to Syracuse. Uh, there's there's a couple arms there, and I don't. The Mets haven't demonstrated that they can take these sort of like reclamation projects, or or maybe I don't know if these guys are old enough to qualify for that title. But guys who haven't necessarily had everything click for them. And, and turn right. them into useful major league relievers. Uh, and I think Dennis Santana is another pitcher who falls into the same category as these two. And uh, so far, it looks like he should not be on a major league mound. I, I, right. <laughs> the strikeouts are there, but you, you can't walk uh, more than eight guys per nine. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and, and stick around. Um. But for now, harmless additions doesn't cost the Mets anything. Uh, I think it's it's still interesting to me that they didn't just hold on. I know you would have had to have like a, a major league roster spot, but uh, Zach Green, who they, they grabbed in the Rule Five draft from the Yankees organization, um, it, when the Yankees got him, actually no, it looks like he hasn't pitched anywhere. So I don't, I don't know if he's healthy or not, uh, or if it was just sort of a delay from bouncing around the organizations and he hasn't gotten into any games yet for the Yankees in Scranton. Mm-hmm. But he he was the same type of pitcher as these guys. Um, those sort of interchangeable eighth reliever, you hope something sticks kind of pitchers. And, and that's fine. Uh, but that sort of the last three, four spots of the bullpen we had talked about coming into the season was a little bit of a concern. Um, right. Especially when there's a guy like Jeff Brigham in AAA 
who right. seems to be m- a much more capable major league pitcher than Dennis Santana at this point. Right. And uh, I know he, he had the, the minor league injured list after a couple of appearances himself, but the, you know, making that opening day roster um, would have seemed a little more justified and, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll see where things end up, but as is always the case, I think we'll be hoping the Mets uh, bring in a relief arm or two at the deadline. And mm-hmm. no matter how well things go this season, we'll be hoping for the same thing in the off season as we always do. But the the fact that their best relievers have been as good as they've been has helped offset uh, maybe the concerns about that final bullpen spot or two. Yes. I also just want to say in terms of um, grabbing these different relievers, I just think it's a good sign that the Mets are doing this. For so many years, it seemed like the Mets would would not be grabbing these guys off waivers. It just seems like I, I, I don't know why the Mets were always so averse to doing that, but it just it just always seemed to me like that was not like Sandy Alderson's MO was to to grab these 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 players for cheap off of waivers. And so I just enjoy the fact that they're doing that in general. It's a smart move to do. It doesn't cost it costs so it costs so little and it allows it hopefully can produce even if it produces no benefit, it's not a big it's not costing any money. And if it produces any benefit, it's a great thing. So yeah. That's uh that's my piece on that. Uh, a couple other quick notes here I want to say. Um supposedly Jose Buto is being brought to the West Coast to possibly start a game to give the Mets a day off. Uh, give the Mets starters a day off, rather. I understand that you have an older pitching staff and you're going to have to do this now and then, but Jose Buto? Right. Yeah. It, <laughs> it's it's not ideal. When we were talking about the uh, plans the Mets had for occasionally inserting a sixth starter into the rotation to take some of the load off the other pitchers either because of their age or in uh, Kodai Sanga's case. And and by the way, like we haven't even talked about him that much, but man, he's been fantastic uh, in, in the very early stages of his major league career. But Buto should be the guy who comes up when like four or five other pitchers are hurt. And I know, I know that there's more than one hurt right now, but uh yeah, he should not be the guy coming up in April as a, a choice among several healthy pitchers. Uh, and I understand that, that maybe level. maybe the argument is that Buto is not a real prospect slash not somebody who's going to play into their plans for later in the season. So if you have to interrupt his progress by sending him to the West Coast, throwing a simulated game or two and then getting into a game, and then back to Syracuse is not going to necessarily throw off his development. Whereas someone like Joey Lucchese, who's coming back from an injury, maybe you want to be more considered with how you use that guy. I understand that argument, but it shouldn't come to Jose Buto this early in the season. Regardless. I guess. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it... it, it... It's not exactly uh, Philip Umber pitching in the, what was it, the penultimate game of, of that season in 2007 or 8. But it's somewhere. Uh, must have been 8, I think. 
Yeah. And Santana started the penultimate game of seven and threw like a no, yeah, no, no, I'm sorry. Eight, he threw the penultimate game, right? Well, yeah, because eight was his first season with the Mets. So. Yeah, yeah. So maybe right. it was 2007. You're right. Yeah, yeah. No, so maybe... no John, Main, John Main threw the penultimate game in 2007. It was a one hitter. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. All right. Well, maybe Umber didn't pitch either of those, but he. <laughs> I, I know the game you're talking about. Yeah. Yes. And I think everybody listening probably does too. So this is not that. It's April. Uh, so in that sense, it's a lot less serious. <clears throat> he, this is not a highly tatted prospect. All of those qualifiers, but um, it's it's still not ideal. And yeah, 2007, now that I'm looking, Umber came up. He made three starts in September, uh, one of which may not have been. Uh, if you give me the dates, I can tell you, because I got married on the 27th. Okay, it was, midnight, sorry. Yeah, it was the 26th. So he, okay. he started in the middle of the final week of the, the regular yes. season. So this is not that, but when you come into the season going, hey, they could win 100 games again, it's not exactly what you thought you might see in April. That's all. Right, exactly. Yes, agreed. Uh, a couple other just quick notes. I mentioned before, Tampa Bay Rays are 13-0, tying a, a modern uh, modern era record. Uh, just insane to watch. Just really fun. Good for them. Um, I hope they never lose because it's a fun story. <laughs> Until yeah. the World Series when the Mets beat them. Yeah, yeah. Hey, 162 or, or – or, how many games did you have to win beyond that uh, in the current format? 169 <laughs> to get to the yeah. World Series? I guess so, yeah. 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 <laughs> Why not, right? So 169 and four. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, with the, with the four that matter. <laughs> uh, we should also mention Darren Ruff was uh, re-signed by the San Francisco Giants. Played in one game, went two for four, had an RBI double. You can't write this stuff, folks. Um, good for him. I will maintain Darren Ruff got a rough, pardon the pun, had a rough deal <laughs> with the Mets. Um, and the last thing I want to talk about, both of us, uh, I, I don't want to sound like Brett Kavanaugh here, but we, we, like, we like beer, right? Um, and yep. <laughs> we, uh, we enjoy beer at a baseball stadium. But there's something going on right now. Because of the shorter games that are happening, some major league teams are extending their beer sales. They used to end at the seventh inning. Now they're extending to the eighth inning. Um, this makes very little sense from the reason that I had always been told that the seventh inning was the last inning to buy beer, which was that it theoretically gave someone a chance to sober up a little bit before they got behind the wheel of the car. So if you're extending beer sales to the eighth inning and then you are also having shorter innings because of the pitch clock, you're basically giving people no time to finish their drink before they have to get into their car and drive home. And as much as I love beer, I don't want people drunk driving after baseball games. And right. this just seems like an incredibly irresponsible move for the teams that have done this. Right. And it, given the trend, it wouldn't be surprising to see all teams in baseball do it, including the Mets. But, uh, and, and I support <clears throat> the policy that was in place for our entire lives. Um, and, you know, you see that uh, concerts typically have a cutoff, uh, certainly in a big arena like Madison Square Garden, which, uh, you know, has one for live music, has um, for a hockey game, second intermission, uh, I think, or the start of the third period. They, you know, there's a cutoff somewhere in there. So 
to have used that logic for so long and then now be in a context of uh, sports betting ads being everywhere and just taking another layer of safety uh, precaution away. Uh, you know, you can, you can go out after the game. <clears throat> and if you are, uh, you know, going to go that hard for a baseball game or any other sporting event, obviously, uh, you know, take public transportation, take, take a ride share, whatever, uh, you know, whatever you gotta yeah. do to, you know, get a ride from somebody who's, who's not in that mode. Uh, and, and we love, we, we loved it when it was McKellar NYC. We, we love Ebbs Brewing. It's a great asset for the team to have there. Um, but if anything, the policy <clears throat> should <laughs> exactly, as you said, the innings that people have to sober up are faster. So if anything, the cutoff should just be moved earlier. Yeah, uh, Phillies pitcher Matt Stram was quoted as saying, the reason we stopped hitting the seventh before was to give our fans time to sober up and drive home safe, right? So now with a faster-paced game and me just being a man of common sense, if the game is going to finish quicker, will we not move the beer sales back to the sixth inning to give our fans time to sober up? Instead, we're going to the eighth, and now you're putting our fans and our family at risk driving home people who just had drank beers 22 minutes ago. He continued, I'm not surprised. When you mess with billionaires' dollars, they find a way to make their dollars back. My thing is, if you're looking at the safety of your fans, it's probably not the smartest decision to extend it into the eighth. And again, just being a common sense thinker, I think as a fan of the game and looking at people, it would make sense if it stopped in the sixth inning. He's right. He's absolutely right. Um, even though he's a Philly, he's right. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, it's just it's just a it's a bummer to see things happen that are so cravenly just because of money. And I know we're, we're living through a time when the Mets have a patch on their, uh, on their sleeve from a hospital. And, uh, you know, I know that there's bets. Uh, you mentioned sports betting ads everywhere. This just feels like another very, very frustrating money. First fan, enjoy fan experience. Second, uh, decision, but Hopefully the Mets never go, never buy into this, but I don't believe that's going to happen. I think they're going to have to do it at some point. But in happier news, Chris, I want some music recommendations from you. Give me a, give me a record to listen to this week. Sure, yeah. Uh, so I am going with a band called The Heavy Heavy. I feel like they've gotten quite a bit of hype, uh, at least in the world that I pay attention to music. Um, they've got a show coming up in Brooklyn in late April. Uh, that I that I believe I'll be at, um, and I, I, you know, reading their bio, they're a five piece band. Uh, pretty much every photo you see uh, is just the the two uh, vocalists who harm one male, one female. They harmonize a lot. Um, they've got sort of that retro sound in terms of the style of rock that they play, but they they've written some pretty damn catchy songs um not gonna either you know they're from the uk like previous recommendation the bug club and nobody's writing catchy songs like the bug club but <laughs> uh on the record they put out last year it's called life and life only um they've, they've got a couple of them for sure uh going down river is if you're in the northeast and sort of experiencing this uh out of nowhere summer like stretch that we're having weather-wise 
I feel like Go Down River is a really good song for um, the warm months. So uh, that that's a good place to start. They also it's the it's not on the record. The record itself is is fairly short, um, and they, they don't have that many songs that are released. Um, but they do a, a pretty good cover of Father John Misty, whether you're like super in his music or not. Um, that it's not on the album, so I guess it doesn't really support my recommendation directly. But (laughs) (laughs) but yeah, just uh, if you've listened to uh, some of my other recommendations over the last year and a half to two years in particular, I think this will fit right in. Uh, And I I think there's sort of a, a, a kind of a wider appeal, like a lot of I'll, I'll take an OC show over almost everything, but I'll also, you know, I recognize not everybody's going to be like, hell yeah. <laughs> I, I love that band. This band seems to, to have something that um, I would not be shocked if they really blew up because they might appeal to uh, like the boy genius crowd side of, uh, you know, mm-hmm. music right now. And then also the, uh, like the desert days world for lack of a better term. Um, so yeah, check them out. They're pretty good. And and I, I believe there's still tickets for their show in Brooklyn later this month. Nice. Uh, I'm going to go with a, a brand new record that came out uh, less than a week ago. It is the newest record by deer hoof is called miracle level. Um, for those who don't know who deer hoof is, they are a, uh, a, a band that plays, uh, I, I mean, I don't even know how you begin to describe them. Some of their stuff is incredibly melodic. Some of it is incredibly noisy. Maybe avant-garde rock, maybe a way to put it. Um, they have been uh, an active band for some time now. This is their 19th studio album, their 18th studio album of, of original material. Uh, they've also released a number of EPs and live records. The lineup has been pretty consistent. Uh, their guitarist, Ed Rodriguez, joined in 2008. That was the most recent uh, change there. And this album, Miracle Level, is interesting for two reasons. Number one, it is their first album recorded in a recording studio. That doesn't mean that they've been uh, recorded unprofessionally. They've just always found sort of ad hoc, unusual places to record instead of a traditional recording studio. This is their first one in a studio. And it's also their first record that is totally in Japanese. Their uh, lead singer, Satomi Matsukai, Matsuzakai, Satomi Matsuzakai, Matsuzaki, god damn it, I, my eyes are so tired, I cannot read tonight. Um, I've always just called her Satomi. But she is Japanese, and so a lot of their songs have been a mix of Japanese and English, but this is the first record that is fully in Japanese. Um, I think that they make some of the most interesting music out there consistently. Just, they're a band that every track surprises you somehow. Um, they don't get so sort of uh atonal and uh off the beaten path that i think it would turn people off uh, a lot of people i i'm sure would um would still think that deer hoof is too avant-garde too, too out there for them but to me their stuff is never um it is never it never pushes it to the point of like unlistenability even for someone who has some some patience for that sort of music i always think that they are there's a there's a foot in the traditional the rock world or whatever but i just think you're not going to find songs more interesting than this pretty much anywhere right now so yeah that's my recommendation the the uh, miracle level by deer hoof
Um, and thank you for listening, everybody. We truly appreciate it. Go to homerunapplesauce.com for a link to our Patreon to directly support the podcasters you've been enjoying for years. Uh, you can still find many of us writing over at amazingavenue.com. You can follow Chris on Twitter at Chris McShane. I am on Twitter at Brian Nitsenap. And until next time, let's go Mets.